So we are down to our last two lessons in Genesis. Um, today we're going to cover uh, in chapter 49, we're going to go through verses 1 through 28. And then next week we'll come up and, and finish the rest, of the, uh, the rest of the book. So Genesis 49, uh, verses 1 through 28. And the title of our lesson is The Purpose of Prophecy. Uh, the purpose of prophecy. If I were to ask you this morning, what do you think the purpose of prophecy in the Bible is? Uh, many of us would probably say, well, it's to glorify God, or it's to uh, predict the future, or validate Scripture, or increase our faith. And those are all, those all are part of, but it's not the real purpose of, of prophecy as we will, uh, as we'll see today. Now, let me say this, Christians for the most part are, I would say, are fascinated with prophecy. And by the way, even non-Christians are fascinated with, with prophecy. And, and, and we can all understand why. I mean, it really is a thrilling thing to take a, a prediction that was made a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago or four thousand years ago and actually see that come true. That is a, that's an amazing thing. It's a, it's a thrilling thing. Um, years ago, when I uh, led the, the youth group here for about five years, uh, I did a, a series for the kids called The Amazing Bible. Uh, it was a three-week series, and it just went through all the things that make the Bible uh, such an amazing book. And, and one of those things is uh, fulfilled prophecy. Uh, one of the examples I used was from Ezekiel chapter 26. This is a Ezekiel prophesying. This is about, this is obviously several thousand years ago. And it, it's a prophecy about the city of Tyre. T-Y-R-E, not T-I-R-E. And in that day, Tyre was a, was a great city. I mean, in fact, it was a city like New York would be today. It was a, it was a center of, uh, of, of, of commerce. It was a center of trade. It was a very wealthy city. It was right on the on the ocean, had a big port. And uh, Ezekiel prophesied this, They shall d destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers, and I will scrape her soil from her and make her a bare rock. She shall be in the midst of the sea, a place for the spreading of nets, for I have spoken, declares the Lord. Now this, is a, this was kind of a crazy prophecy for two reasons. Number one, Tyre was on the mainland. Even though, she, even though it was a city on the coastline, she wasn't on an island. And it says in the midst of the sea, doesn't it? doesn't say on the edge of the sea. It says on the midst of the sea. And it's, I mean, this is a great city. So the idea of somehow, I mean, this, this almost seems like a crazy prophecy. Well, Ezekiel makes this prophecy in the 6th century B.C., which is about 2,500, 2,600 uh, years ago. And as I said, Tyre was this like a New York City of today. It was probably one of the most powerful cities in the world. Several years after this prophecy, a man named uh, Nebuchadnezzar, which we all know from the Bible, laid siege uh, against this um, uh, city. And the city was on the, on the coastline, and he, they laid siege to it. So the inhabitants of the city actually moved off the, main line, off the mainland out to an island. There was an island just off the coast. And they actually just relocated the city. They went out to the island. They rebuilt the city. They refortified the city. And they, they stayed there for several hundred more uh, years. And, and it remained a very powerful city. And so Nebuchadnezzar went back where he came from. 
and it seemed like, well, part of the prophecy was complete. Now they're in the they're on an island, right? They're in the midst of the sea, but they're still a, a, a very powerful, very strong uh, city. Several hundred years later, a man come along by the name of Alexander the Great, and Alexander the Great did something crazy. He took the rubble. There was a they Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the city on the mainland. Alexander the Great took all the rocks and the rubble and he built a causeway out to the island. Y'all remember the old causeway used to go over to St. George? Well, he built one of them 2,600 years ago. They just piled the rock up and made a road going from the mainland out to the island. And he went out there and he laid siege and he conquered the city. And over the next centuries, many more conquerors would, would follow Alexander the Great. And it wasn't until the 12th century A.D., um, that which is about 1,800 years after Ezekiel's prophecy, prophecy, that that city was finally raised to the ground and that prophecy was fulfilled. It, it, it's uh, one of the things I showed the, kid, the kids. There's a, there's a high school textbook. Uh, it was written around 1900. And that high school textbook says this, Tyre never regained the place she had previously held in the world. The larger part of the once great city is now as bare as the top of a rock, a place where local fishermen spread their nets to dry. Isn't that crazy? So, I mean, it's exactly what God says. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay you bare and, and, and fishermen will spread their nets to dry. And that's exactly what happens uh, today. People just use that once great city as a place to spread their nets. Now, that is, that's thrilling, isn't it? When you see something that God says thousands of years ago and it comes true that type of fulfilled prophecy is is it's it's amazing and as i said earlier if i if you ask me what's the purpose of that well it glorifies god as the omniscient creator it validates scripture as the revealed word of god and it increases our faith doesn't it when you see things like man this this bible is the is revealed it it does all of those things okay but what about prophecy that goes unfulfilled in our lifetime. You got a prophecy sitting there in the Bible and hadn't been fulfilled. What's the point of that? What, does it serve any purpose at all? We, we can see the purpose of fulfilled prophecy, right? But what about unfulfilled prophecy that hasn't been fulfilled yet? What purpose does that serve? Is, is there any value at all to us today to read that kind of prophecy? Well, the answer is yes, and we're going to discover that today. Let's begin reading in Genesis 49, 1 through 2. It says, Then Jacob called his sons, and he said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel your father. So Jacob calls all of his 12 sons. Like I said, we said last week, Jacob's been dying for years, but now it's, 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 it's the real deal. He's really going to die calls his 12 sons in together, and he's going to prophesy over each uh, of his sons, okay? Now, one thing we need to be clear about is these prophecies are not so much to spell out the future of the individual boys, but it's more to spell out the future of the tribes that they come from, the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Dan. It's more about the history of the nation than it is these individual uh, boys. Now, the prophecies will deal with the character of those boys. 
It will deal with their character and their disposition. But the future that's being predicted is really the future of the nation as manifested in the... Everybody with me? So it's not so much about these individual boys as it is the people that will come from them, their, their descendants. Okay. So here's a question. What purpose did these prophecies serve these boys, these 12 sons of Jacob? Now that may seem like an odd question, but you have to remember something. These boys will die in Egypt. The, the vast majority of these prophecies that, that Jacob is going to prophesy are never fulfilled in their lifetime. They don't see it happen. They're going to die. Everybody with me? They're going to die right there in Egypt. They're, never, they're not going to make it back to the land of Canaan. Their descendants will, but they won't. So, so they're being prophesied over, but these prophecies are not going to come true in their particular uh, lifetime. So my question is, what's the point? What, what is the point of prophesying over somebody that that prophecy is not going to come true in their, in, their, in their lifetime? Why would God predict... And this, is, this question relates directly to us. Why would God predict events which gonna, are going to occur beyond their lifetime? See, that relates to us, doesn't it? Why would God predict events that's going to occur beyond our lifetime? What value is it? What purpose do they, do they have? And again, that's exactly how this lesson today applies to us. Because there are prophecies in the Bible where God says something's going to happen, but it's probably not going to happen in our lifetime. So what purpose is it? Do we just, do we just ignore those prophecies? No. No, we don't, because there's a, there's a very valid purpose uh, for these. So what I want to do this morning is, is see first, what is the purpose of these prophecies for these boys? And then we'll take that lesson and we'll apply it to ourselves. Okay, if it, was, if it served that purpose for them, then what purpose does it serve for us? Now, I'm going to go down through the 12 sons. And we're going to go through these very quickly, and I'll tell you why in, in just a little bit. We'll start with Reuben, verses 3 and 4. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. But you are as unstable as water, and you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Now, Jacob starts out, he's got this firstborn son, Reuben. And he starts out by kind of building him up. Man, you're the firstborn, you are the preeminence of dignity and all these kind of things. You see, he should have been, he should have had the birthright. In that culture, the firstborn son got the birthright, which means when your father died, you became the leader of the family, you got a double portion of the inheritance. All those things came to you or should have come uh, to you. But then Jacob basically yanks the rug right out from under him. And what he does, he brings up an incident that happened 40 years ago. Jacob has never forgot it. 40 years have gone by since what happened happened. And now it's coming back to bite him. And you'll remember way back in Genesis 35, uh, uh, Reuben went in and slept with his stepmother. He went in and slept with Jacob's concubine, one of the, one of the maids. That happened 40 years ago, and now he comes back and says, you're not going to have the birthright. I'm pulling it away from you because you slept with your stepmother. You see, Reuben should have been a leader. And in fact, Reuben should have been, a, been the one to defend his father's 
honor, not defile it. But he did that one thing, that one act of indulgence, for whatever reason that he did it, and we covered all that back in chapter 35, but for whatever reason he did it, the point is that disqualified him in his father's eyes to, for, for him to step up and be the leader of the family. And so he takes away from him the privileges of the, of the firstborn. <clears throat> now, he moves on to the next two, which are Simeon and, and Levi, verses 5 and 7. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel, and, O oh my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob, and I will scatter them in Israel. If you'll remember the story of these two boys, their sister Dinah was raped. Y'all remember that? By, by one of the men of, of Shechem. And they got so angry that they, they, they went to all the men of the city and they said, let's make a deal. You guys all get circumcised and you can marry our, our sister. And so all the men of the city got circumcised and when they were very weak and couldn't do anything, they went into that city and they slaughtered every man in that city. Even though only one man raped their, raped their sister, they killed every man in that, uh, in that city. And, and, and Jacob points something out. It says he, they hamstrung the oxen. They hamstrung the oxen. Back in that day, when you made war against somebody, you would sometimes hamstring horses because horses could be used as, as, uh, as animals in a fight, right? They could pull chariots. They could, uh, you know, uh, soldiers could ride on them. So sometimes you would hamstring and disable horses. But you never hamstrung oxen because they were peaceful animals. They were just used for farming. You didn't do anything uh, like that. So this idea that they hamstrung oxen is an example of just wanton violence. It's just senseless destruction. It is, it is anger run amok. I mean, they're just, I mean, they're so angry. They're just killing ham. I mean, they just get out of control. And because of that, and because that was in their character and in their disposition... Jacob says, no, it's not going to come to you either. See, and it, it, normally when the firstborn, if, if that one didn't work out, you would have passed it to the secondborn. And if not to the second, then the third. But he skips all the way past them as well. Let's come to Judah, verses 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the, of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. This is a a prophecy of abundance, okay? There's a lot of things going on here. Basically, the preeminence, which was belonged to Reuben, and it skipped uh, uh, Simeon and Levi, is basically clearly here being transferred to Judah. He is the one that's going to rule over his brothers. And the words of Jacob here speak of a very bright, very prosperous, very abundant uh, future. His descendants are going to rule over the other tribes. That's in verse 8. 
Uh, David, of course, comes from Judah. The Messiah comes from Judah. His military might is compared to the strength of a lion in, in verse 9. The Messiah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. That's talking about Jesus. That's talking about the Messiah in verse 10. He will be so blessed that he's going to plant vineyards and the vines will be strong enough to tie up a donkey and the donkey won't be able to break the vines. That's, that's speaking to how, how strong and healthy his vineyards are going to be. The wine from those vineyards are going to be so abundant he could wash his clothes in them. That's, you ever heard of somebody being so rich they could start a fire with money, with dollar bills, right? And he's going to be, his vineyards are going to be so productive that he could literally wash his clothes in, in wine. That's one of the things it's saying in verse 11. They're so prosperous that he's going to have more than enough to drink. That's why he speaks about his eyes being darker than wine, redder than, than wine. And of course, his cattle are going to prosper, his, the milk, uh, everything he does is just going to prosper. Okay, so this is what this is speaking of, of here as well. It moves on to Zebulon and Issachar, verses 13 and 15. Zebulon shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his, his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear, and he became a servant at forced labor. And then it moves on to the next son, Dan, verses 16 and 17. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heel so that his rider falls backwards. Now, he's about halfway through the boys, and at this point, he stops and he says something that seems completely out of context, right? He's, he's going down from one boy to the next, and he gets to verse 18, and he just stops... And he says, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Now, you've got to ask the question, now why would he do that? Why do you get halfway through your boys and you say, I wait for your salvation, O, o Lord? Well, he's just, the last son he just prophesied over, he says Dan is going to be a snake who bites a horse's heel. Now, there's a couple things could be going on. That may, by the way, have brought to his mind. You remember way back in, in, in Genesis 3 where God says, I'm going to raise up a seed of the woman? Y'all remember that? See, he may have thought about that, the seed of the woman who would bruise the serpent's heel. That, that may have brought that back to his, his remembrance when he said that. Or it could have reminded him of his own deception. You remember when his brother was being born, he grabbed his what? He grabbed his heel. It could have reminded him of that from Genesis 25. Or he may have just realized, look, I'm going down through this list of sons, and if I'm going to depend on them for the history of Israel, this ain't going very good. Right? Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and he gets to Dan. He's like, what have I raised here? What have I done wrong? So it could have just been that. He says, oh, God, save us. That's really what he's, what he's saying. So it could have been, we don't know, but there's something that, that prompted that. But whatever prompted it, the hope is very clear. Okay? Salvation for Israel is not going to come from these boys. It's not going to come from any man. It's going to come from God and God alone. And he express, expresses that in that statement. By the way, just a, a quick FYI, where it says, I wait for your salvation, that is the very first occurrence of the word salvation in the Old Testament. The very first. It is the word Yeshua. 
which is, of course, Jesus. I wait for your Yeshua, O Lord. That is the very first time that this occurs here near the end of Genesis. Next, he gets to Gad, Asher, and Naphtali, verses 19 to 21. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Got two more to go, Joseph and, and Benjamin. <clears throat> Joseph, verses 22 to 26. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with the blessings of heaven above. Blessings of the deep that crouch beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. This talks about Joseph being bitterly attacked, and of course he was. He was bitterly attacked by his brothers, yet he remained steadfast. Now his blessings are largely material. Um, His future and the future of his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, are going to be uh, one of fruitfulness and of, of abundance. And finally, the last one is Benjamin. Verse 27, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. Verse 28, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Now, Needless to say, I found this section very difficult to study. You can imagine, right? Um, sometimes you would read commentaries and you think, well, what does this mean? And one commentator would say, well, it means this. And another commentator would say, well, it means the exact opposite. And you can understand it. Look at, look at the one about Dan. You remember the, the prophecy on Dan. Dan shall be a serpent in the way. Well, now, is that good or is that bad? Is he saying that Dan is going to be deceptive like a snake? Or is he saying that Dan, like a snake, his strength will be through his cleverness and through his subtlety? Is is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? It's hard to say, right? I mean, that's the point. It's not easy to know exactly what is meant by each of these prophecies. And I'll be honest with you, it's very difficult to teach with conviction on things that are uncertain. And I don't, I don't like that. If, if, if you can't be pretty sure what something means, it's very difficult to teach with conviction. So I'm not going to go into a lot of um, detail on the specifics, right? We could chase rabbits for each one of those tribes and what did this mean and where this one went and what happened to this one. We could go all down those roads for literally for weeks if we, if we wanted to. And some people, some people do that. I do want to make a couple, though, of very general observations uh, about this, okay? The first one is this. Did every detail of Jacob's prophecies come to pass? Did every detail come to pass? Well, we can be pretty certain that the answer to that is no, it didn't. There's a couple reasons why. For example, you remember, if you go back and look at it, it said Zebulon would dwell by the seashore. Y'all remember that when I went by it real quick? 
Well, we have no record in the Bible. If we follow through Scripture, and we, when they got into Israel and how all the tribes were divided up, we have no record of Zebulon ever dwelling directly by, or his tribe dwelling directly on the, on the seaside. Okay? Now, that's a little bit disconcerting, but we have to remember something. History isn't over yet. God's still got a lot of history for Israel out there ahead of us. Okay? So there are some things which will still may come true in the, in the future. doesn't mean it's not fulfilled as yet. So we need to remember that. Another example that we have, I think, of unfulfilled prophecy, do you remember Simeon and Levi, and he rebukes them for how evil they were, how, how, how their anger just ran amok? He said, I will disperse you. You'll be dispersed. But it turns out, of course, we should all know this, that Levi becomes the priestly tribe, which is a tribe that is a great blessing, right? They, they become the priestly tribe. So how do they go from being said they're gonna, you're going to be just dispersed to being this tribe of great blessing? Let me tell you, you've got to understand something about prophecy. Sometimes God doesn't intend to fulfill every prophecy. And that's not heresy, so don't throw anything at me. Some prophecies are God's warning of what will come to pass if people don't change. Listen to Jeremiah 18. This is the words of God. God says this, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I'm going to pluck them up and break them down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. Now listen to this. At the same time, if I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I'm going to build it and plan it and prosper it, and it turns around and does evil in my sight and doesn't listen to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do to it. So sometimes God says, I'm going to do this to this nation, and then that nation turns. That nation repents. Or that nation the other way around, falls into sin. And, and God says, okay, whatever I said I was going to do, I'm not going to do that because they changed. So sometimes a prophecy is what he will do if they don't change. Now, one other quick observation. Why are these words of Jacob recorded? Why did Moses make sure, if they're so difficult to track down and figure out what happened, why did he record them? Because I think Moses, and of course the Holy Spirit, wanted the Israelites, who was, who's going to read these words some 400 years later, and, and, and also us, who are going to read them thousands of years later, they wanted us to learn the same lesson. And that's why prophecies... See, prophecies for them that were unfulfilled served a valuable lesson, and prophecies for us that are unfulfilled serve a valuable lesson. And that's why I think Moses had them recorded. So here, let's get to this point. Well, here are the two purposes of prophecy. The two purposes of prophecy. Let's go back to our earlier question. Why would God predict events that were beyond those boys' lifetime? Why would he say, here you are today, these things are going to happen, but then they die in Egypt and they never see them happen? Why would he, why would he do that? What's the point? What's the value of that to those boys? Well, the primary lesson they were supposed to see is that their character not only affects their own destiny, it affects the destinies of those who would follow them. 
That is the primary lesson I think Jacob and, 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 and the Holy Spirit wanted them to see. Your character, who you are, matters not just to you, but it matters to your children and your children's children and your great-grandchildren and on that. You are affecting death. I mean, this is a crazy truth. It is heavy. The very fact that who you are today is affecting people right down the line that you'll never meet and never see. That's what he wanted them to see. Present actions have future uh, consequences. You see, these prophecies of Jacob reminded those boys and should remind us of a great truth. Who you are today tends to shape what your nation will become. Who you are today will shape what your nation is going to become. Now, you may say, well, how does that apply to us? Well, it's the same question. Why would God predict events which are beyond our lifetime? What value of those prophecies are to us? I think it's two things. Number one, prophecy focuses our attention on the future. The first purpose of prophecy, prophecy focuses our attention on the future. Can we be really honest here this morning? We don't, even those of us who would consider ourselves mature Christians, it's very difficult for us to live for the future. We tend to live in the present, don't we? It's like, it's just in our nature that we live for the present. We don't live for the future. How many of you make, have gone around making a decision and think, well, what do I do here because how will this affect America 100 years from now? Does anybody think like that? No. Nobody's thinking about the future of our nation 100, 200 years from now. We don't make decisions like that. We think, we think in the present. How's it going to affect me? If we do well, we think, well, how does it affect my children? That's doing good, but we don't, we don't look down uh, and, and think, well, how about our descendants, our great-grandchildren, our great-grandchildren? We don't think that far ahead. But you see, Israel's hope, like our hope, was a future hope. It's not in this world. It's a future hope. See, Jacob and his sons are living there in Egypt. Go, go back to the practicality here. Jacob and his sons are living in Egypt. And they got everything they need. J uh, Joseph is taken care of them. They got plenty to eat. They got plenty to drink while the rest of the country's falling apart. They're just prospering and growing. And, and the kids are just being born left and right. And they're just getting bigger and bigger. And boy, now let me ask you a question. Why would they ever leave? Why would they ever leave when they have it so, so good? Where See, there was a very grave danger for them that they would be satisfied with Egypt that they would be satisfied where they are. And that was an incredibly grave danger to the future of, of Israel. You see, Israel's hope lay in Canaan, not Egypt. The sons of Jacob needed to look ahead. They, they can't just look where they are today and think, boy, everything's great. No, they needed to look ahead to their descendants. Where do their descendants belong? In the same way, you and I have to fix our hopes on the future not the momentary and the temporary pleasures of this world. It is so dangerous for us to get caught up in this world and everything that it offers. Our hope is out there, not here. We're just passing through. This is not our home. And we need to be reminded of that. And prophecy reminds us of that over and over and over and over and over uh, again. We are to fix our hope on the future. Listen to 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. That's your hope. You have an inheritance. There is another land that you belong to. And we should live our lives with that, not just, not just as a thought, but in our, that should be our primary focus, to get to, that pro, to get to that promised land, to get to that hope. So prophecy helps us keep our mind focused on the eternal, not just the temporary and the momentary. And that's a really good thing about, that's a huge uh, purpose of prophecy, but it does much more than that. Prophecy, while we're focusing on the future, it, foc- it, it causes us to, to basically live differently in the present. In other words, our, our, our focus is on the future. We're pressing toward the goal. We're, we're, we're getting toward the finish line. But while we're on this race, we actually pro- prophecy causes us to live differently right here. You see, the future promises of God are meant to prompt purity and holiness in your life, not complacency. That was the point of Jacob's prophecies to his sons. How you live today, boys, matters. Who you are today, sons, matters. Reuben, 40 years ago, what you did mattered. I can't just slough that off. I can't just... You, you affected the destiny. Your, your, you, your descendants should have had the birthright and you threw it all away. Who you are today, Reuben, matters. Simeon and Levi, you, you just ran amok killing and, and you thought, well, you, you didn't think that was going to have consequences? No, that's who you are and it matters. And you just affected your descendants down the line. I want you to listen to a New Testament prophecy. This is a New Testament prophecy. This is 2 Peter 3.10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Now, more than likely, we will not see that in our lifetime. Okay? Probably not going to see that in our lifetime. That's way out in the future somewhere. So that is an, would, for us would be an unfulfilled prophecy, yes? Okay. Now, how should, is that of any value to us at all? Any value to us? Well, listen to what Peter says. Listen to the effect it should have. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? See, Peter's saying if this is all going to go away, if this is all going to be burned up, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? See, he's saying a prophecy, even an unfulfilled prophecy, should spur you to live lives of godliness and holiness. That's the purpose of prophecy. He goes on, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promises, listen to what Peter says, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The writer of Hebrews said this about Moses, Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God 
than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Why? For he was looking to the reward. You see, when our focus is on the eternal, when our focus is on the reward, when our focus is on heaven, that should translate to a life of holiness, a a, a life connected to the covenant people of God, not a life connected to the world. See, it should change everything, not just about what we're looking for, but about how we live our life. I want to give a few final thoughts before we move on. I want to give you two cautions uh, with regards to prophecy. Okay, I said when I started out that Christians, for the most part, seem to be fascinated with prophecy. Okay, Um, and, and just trying to figure all this stuff out, right? I want to give you two cautions about that. Here's the first one. There is no doubt in my mind that God has revealed His future plans. But you have to understand our human limitations will often prevent us from understanding things correctly. It's sitting right there in Scripture. God has laid it all out. But sometimes our our human minds, we just cannot see what we need to see until after the fact. Let me give you an example. The first coming of Christ is revealed all over the Old Testament. In fact, I read somewhere that there were 300, 330 prophecies about the coming of Jesus. And after the fact, we can all see very clearly that the Messiah had to suffer, yes? It's all over the Old Testament. The one we know the best is Isaiah 53. Surely He has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Now you can take this to pretty much anybody, and they'll tell you, well, that's talking about Jesus, yes? It is so clear. What you need to understand that prior to his coming, the wisest rabbi scholars in the world missed it. They did not expect him to be a suffering Savior. His own disciples missed it. Until he he had to explain to them after the fact, after he rose from the dead, he had to kind of lay it all out. And they're like, oh, now I see. But it was staring them right in the face in the Old Testament Scriptures. Now here's the thing. If they could miss that, couldn't we miss things as well? If they misunderstood that, which seems so clear to us today... Couldn't we read a prophecy and completely misunderstand it as well? Sure we could. Because we are, we're just limited by our human minds. Second caution. The other thing I notice about prophecy is that it can become an obsession if you're not careful. People can get immersed in the details of prophecy. What does this mean? What does that mean? And you get so immersed in it, you forget the weightier details of holy living. Right? That's, that's not what it's all supposed to all be about. Now, there's nothing wrong with being interested in prophecy. In fact, much of the Bible is, is full of prophecy. So I'm not saying there's anything uh, wrong with it. But the purpose of Bible, biblical prophecy is not to, 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 to focus or to uh, spend too much time or speculate on all the details like who the Antichrist is or when is Armageddon going to occur. and just You can get all caught up in all of that stuff. The purpose of prophecy is to motivate us to purity and holiness. That's the point. 
It's, it's sitting there. Listen, the book of Revelation is a ex- perfect example of this, okay? Somebody asked me one time, are you going to teach through the book of Revelation? No, I'm not, because i got no clue what half of it even means. I, 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 do you? I, I don't have a clue. I would be searching and speculating and trying to figure it all out. Listen, I don't understand a lot of the details, but let me tell you, I get the message. The message is Jesus is coming back and he's going to win big. That's the message. I'm not going to get lost in the details. That book motivates me to live a holy life because he's coming back. That book motivates me to live a holy life because I get the general idea of what it says. I don't need to know all the details. See, that's what prophecy wants to do. It wants to motivate you to a life worthy of your calling. That's its purpose. Next week, I want to give you a quick, a, a, a quick preview of where we're going. Next week, we come to the end of our study. Uh, 19 months we've been in the book of Genesis. And so we, we, uh, we finish it up next week. We'll be covering Genesis 49, uh, 29 through uh, chapter 50, 26. So we'll finish that up. At, what is that, the 28th? Is next week the 28th? Is anybody actually? That's correct. Okay, so the 28th, we'll finish that up. The following Sunday, August the 4th, I'm going to do something a little bit different. Normally what I do before we start our next book, uh, sometimes I'll just take a Sunday or two and I will do something different. You remember uh, we, the, the last study we did on the parables before we started Genesis, we, we took a Sunday and went through the history of the English Bible. Y'all remember Y'all remember we did all that. We always do something different. Well, so August the 4th, I'm going to do something a little bit different. I have been uh, really uh, feeling impressed lately that I need to give my testimony, that I need to go back in time and, and, and relay how did I get to where I am uh, today. Now, by the way, that's unusual for me because in, in 29 years, I have not ever done that. I've never. I've, I've talked to individual people, but I've never stood up in front of a group and just said, "This is what happened to me." And uh, so I'm going to do that on on August the fourth. I feel like it's it's time for me to to do that. And so next week we'll finish up uh, with the end of Genesis, and then on August fourth we'll do the uh, the testimony, and then the next Sunday, the eleventh, we will pick up with the study of. We'll see. It could be either. It could be either, I'll give you a hint, it could be either Old Testament or New. It's one of those two. All righty, let's pray. Father.